Hello. Thanks so much for being here, Mike. I'm here every week. <laughs> Thanks for being here. I'm thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> Falling apart already. Unbelievable. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good, a senior writer at Wired, and I'm here with my Gadget Lab co-host, Wired senior editor, Michael Calori. Hello. Hello. And today we are also joined by Wired editor-at-large, Stephen Levy. Stephen, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks. Thanks for finally letting me in this podcast room. Yeah, you know, we hear that a lot from our colleagues at Wired. They remember, like, with great detail the last time they were on the show, such as when Brian Barrett comes back on. He's like, it's been 17 months since I was on the show. But the truth <laughs> is, is that we always want to have our colleagues on the show. And we're so happy that you're here. And when was the last time you were on the show, by the way? The late 50s. Okay. <laughs> we were very, very early to podcasting. <laughs> I mean, we were doing podcasts back when some people weren't even listening to terrestrial radio. Okay, Stephen, let's get right to it. You were here because you wrote a book. It's called Facebook, The Inside Story. I have it right here in front of me. Folks, this is a tome. I don't know if you just heard that thud on the table, but this is like you could lift weights with this thing. Uh, you spent years on this book, Stephen, and you had a fair amount of access to people like Mark Zuckerberg and other executives like Sheryl Sandberg in the process. It's a fantastic book. What compelled you to start writing this book when you did? So I can't even pinpoint the date. It was August 27th, 2015, when Mark Zuckerberg wrote on his feed, he put a story up, saying a billion people had been on Facebook the day before. And this wasn't how many people had signed up for the service. This was like a billion people in 24 hours had been on Facebook. And I thought about that. Had that ever happened before? Like the World Cup gets a billion people. But that's not an interactive network where someone could post something and in theory can get to everybody. Uh, and all the people's individual networks were intertwined there. So I'd known that his ambitions were huge and that Facebook was doing very well. But the reality of it made me think, wow, this is something new. How do I tell this story? I've got to tell this story. This is my story. And you know, to tell who did it, how they did it, and what it means. And you had written a book about Google previously. Um, talk a little bit about that experience and how it compared to your writing of the Facebook story. Yeah, my previous book was called In the Plex. It was about Google. And it, the process was similar in that I went to them and said, I want to write a book. Uh, give me access to your people. Um, you don't get to say anything about the contents. You'll see it when it's done. And um, I thought it would be pretty much a similar process. I would write this. I would try to put together a narrative of the, the story of Google where people would be able to understand Google after they read the book. And the story, you know, almost like a novel, would have you know, a, a climax and you know, it would have tension. And the tension in this story, the Google story, was its experience in China where it went through this moral dilemma. Uh, and I thought, this will be something similar. And Facebook, maybe their moral dilemma might be this uh, program they had called internet.org, where they spread around the world and did something, it was kind of unfair to competitors, where they would give away free data if you use Facebook. Uh, and if you were competing with Facebook, uh, people would pay for your data. So you, you, Facebook would basically get a head start all over the world. Um, as it turned out, uh, internet.org was the least of Facebook's worries <laughs> during the course of this book 
because uh, it took actually a year for me to start researching after that post because I had to convince Facebook to do it um, and get my affairs in order. And uh, the first thing I did was I went to Africa with Mark Zuckerberg to Nigeria. Uh, he was treated like a hero. I later realized this was peak Facebook. Things were going so great. Everyone loved Mark Zuckerberg, um, though Facebook had had his issues. It was still pretty popular. And then the election came in November 2016, and the bit flipped. Everything changed. And for the next three years, and to the current day, but when I was doing the book, uh, Facebook was in hot water, deservedly so. So the book really became an exercise into saying, here's what happened to Facebook, and I'm going back in the past to tell you how this happened, what went wrong, and why it went wrong, uh, down to pinpointing individual incidents where Facebook went down the path to perdition. Well, you, you actually go all the way back in the book, uh, which I really appreciated because uh, by getting into you know where Facebook came from and how it was created and the environment in which it was created gives us a lot of context about why the product was so important to people. So you illustrate pretty clearly in the book that um, the the idea of building a social network was not a new idea. There were things that came before, uh, like uh, Six Degrees and um, Friendster. Friendster and MySpace and things that people were actually engaging in. Uh, you know, it was during the period when friend was moving from a noun to a verb, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so... All those other social networks fizzled. None of them took off. What was it in particular about Facebook that allowed it to not only thrive but to completely dominate? I think that the roots of it really were that Facebook at first did not try to connect everyone in the world. It was a college network, and it was something that Mark – Zuckerberg in particular, wanted to see happen. You know, the most successful products are often things that people build for themselves. So he was a college student. He understood the way college students interact with each other. And he was building project after project in his sophomore year, not going to class as much. And a lot of them had to do with providing utility for the college experience. One of his earlier programs was something that uh, when you looked at a class, you would be able to see what friends of yours had signed up for the class. So you could you know, hang out with them at the class, steal their notes, other kinds of stuff. And uh, for the Facebook, which is what it was called when it was launched in February 2004, it was a way that people can learn more about each other and maybe find other people in their college community who they wanted to get to know better and find out what was up with them. So if your friend had a, you know, a bunch of other friends that you wanted to get in touch with, learn more about them, you could use that. Because he was able to fix the dials and be really effective in building this initial network, he had a head start, I believe, in making a product that people would want to use when he extended it out to the world at large. So I think that the idea that it was constrained uh, at first, led to its success in being unconstrained and unleashed upon the world later on. I have always argued that the like button is the most uh, important instrument uh, in Facebook's journey. I, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I devoted quite a lot of space to the like button. <laughs> you really did. Um, so I want to talk about it a little bit. But first, uh, I want you to tell the story of how it came to be because it didn't just appear. It sort of like stumbled into existence. Right. Uh, the like button started when uh, a couple of uh, Facebook's engineers wanted a, a more expressive way to quickly comment on a post. 
uh, instead of saying, uh, writing a whole comment, you know, you could go in one little flick whether you approved of it or not. And uh, Facebook at first didn't like this idea. Zuckerberg didn't like this idea because he felt that if you have the ability to respond to something with one click, you wouldn't make a comment. So various people had taken over the project and tried to push it. Um, it had different names at first, and you know, it finally settled on like. And uh, it wasn't until they were able to run an experiment and prove that when you release the like button, and you know, they did it in a couple countries, uh, comments would actually go up because it was a good signal that the post should be circulated more. It gave it a higher ranking in, in people's newsfeed. But I think the real significance came when they spread the like button out through past Facebook's boundaries onto the web. They got millions and millions of people with websites and businesses to put the like button on their pages, and that gave Facebook this data of who was doing what and you know, uh, on the web, and basically Facebook became throughout the world, and that really was a signal to Facebook that their business model eventually will be built around that data. So I, I really think that was the start of the big data cascade mm -hmm. that would come to signify what Facebook was in a business sense and, uh, and also in a sense where they got into some trouble later on. It's yeah. really interesting to think about algorithms now. The word algorithms has become such a part of our vernacular to the point where people kind of hand wave at it or some people joke about not really knowing what it means. But it's this idea that all these data signals are creating these algorithms that inform the things that we see and experience on the internet. And this is really one of the earliest, like most consumer friendly versions of those signals, just constantly telling Facebook what you're into and how that's that's ultimately going to impact your experience on the web. And it's also going to tell a lot about yourself. So I talk about how a researcher um, not at uh, Facebook, outside of Facebook, uh, determined that uh, with, I think, 15 likes, if you see someone's <sighs> likes, for 15 likes, you'll know as much about them as you know someone you know casually. And 30 likes, you'll know them as much as you know one of your real friends. Uh, with 100 likes, you'll know them really as much as you know someone really well. 100 likes, you'll be on a par parallel with that. And with 300 likes, Facebook will know as much about you as you know your spouse. This is the uh, personality test, guys, right? Stillman and Kaczynski? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. boy, you're up to it. Yeah, so Stillman and, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, David uh, Still, Stillman and Michael uh, Kaczynski. Uh, was it Stillwell? You know, uh, oh, yeah, right, Stillwell. Stillwell, yeah. Thank you, yeah. yes, Stillwell. Um, and Michael Kaczynski were these researchers at Cambridge University, which turns out to be uh, a center for uh, a lot of activity around this because uh, their colleague, a guy named Alexander Kogan, was the person who got Cambridge Analytica involved in the whole story. Um, and it was, you know, he tried to bring in Kaczynski and Stillwell into his project, and uh, they didn't like it in part because Cambridge Analytica wasn't going to pay them enough money. And uh, Kaczynski later turned out, and this hadn't been reported before, um, to be the person who dropped the dime on the whole project and first told The Guardian that this thing was going on. Wow. Another massively important development in Facebook's history was Newsfeed. And in the book, you talk about how in one of your earliest meetings with Zuckerberg, if not the first meeting you had with him, he 
he he was noodling this. This was like in the works, but they did not mention it to you. Right. No. Well, he hardly mentioned anything in our he, first right. meeting. I met him in 2006. Yeah. Uh, he was a fresh-faced young entrepreneur. Yeah. I thought um, I was writing a story about what was called Web 2.0 at the time, where user-generated content was starting to appear on the web. And I uh, heard about this company was really successful in the college market. Uh, the companies that we were focusing on in this Newsweek story were MySpace, YouTube, and Flickr. Um, but, you know, I thought that it would be good to talk to him and get a couple quotes uh, from him. And we, I arranged to meet him at this conference and have lunch together. And I pitched him a few softball questions. And he didn't say anything. He just, like, stared at me. It was very unnerving. I wondered whether he was having an episode or he didn't like me or what was going on. And it took a while before I was able to eke out even some cursory answers to my questions. Um, and then I later learned during the course of researching this book that at the time that I couldn't get a conversation from him. He was feverishly writing in this notebook, and he was in total flow, redesigning Facebook to be this global force. And uh, he had a couple products he was designing in this notebook that sometimes he'd share a couple pages with uh, his employees. And one of them was Newsfeed. It was called Feed at the time. And it was uh, transformative to the product. It's the thing that we look at when we open up Facebook now, that stream of things that comes uh, from people you know and all too often from people you don't know who are <laughs> you know, somehow connected to you in the network and are sharing something with a lot of, that got a lot of engagement. Um, and uh, it's the source of a lot of Facebook success and a lot of its troubles. Speaking of those troubles, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what happens when the world's largest social network, really, in like in the history of humanity, the largest human network, uh, gets into some hot water. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Gadget Lab. We're here with our Wired colleague, Stephen Levy, who has just penned a book, Facebook, The Inside Story. Stephen, there is a distinct shift that happens in the book sometime around chapter 14, which is part three of the book. Prior to that, we read a lot about Facebook's growth, its strategizing, um, Game of Thrones type maneuvering, Zuckerberg being savvy enough to buy up companies like WhatsApp and Oculus and Instagram. And then there's the 2016 election. How much responsibility do you think Facebook has for what everything that went down in the 2016 U.S. presidential election? Well, everything that went down encompasses a lot. But uh, Facebook did have responsibility for allowing a lot of false information to circulate on its platform. It also had a responsibility for making sure that uh, the law wasn't violated by foreign powers coming in and running a disinformation campaign on its platform. And both of those things uh, are things that Facebook, I think, could have stopped and should have stopped. The, the, the first part, the false information, uh, aka fake news, uh, it, it was called to its attention pretty widely. Uh, the phenomenon was called to its attention well before the election, but during the last few weeks of the election in particular, uh, people were complaining about it. Obama himself, when he was campaigning for Hillary, was talking about uh, all the the, you know, the false news and you know and, it, and attacks on uh, on Hillary um, happening on Facebook. He called out Facebook, but Facebook made a conscious decision to do nothing about it. Well, and that's exactly it, though. It seems as though Facebook 
along with Twitter, along with many other platforms, although none, of course, have the scale of Facebook, for a long time have sort of hid behind this idea that they are not media companies, that, you know, it's if you want to get legal, it's, you know, Section 230, right? Like, which most people don't want to get into. But anyway, it's this whole idea, right, that they are platforms, they serve up content, but they're not necessarily responsible for uh, being editors around the content that, that bubbles up on the network. And yet, it seems as though Facebook really didn't, fully understand that or chose not to well they, they chose not to and i talk about a meeting where um it was discussed uh it was called the cheryl meeting actually but uh cheryl from my the accounts that i heard of this meeting uh you know she was on the call and, and, and listening but let her policy people take the lead uh and one in particular a fellow named joel kaplan who was the head of their washington office a lifelong republican um, said that we should lay off. It would be like putting our thumbs on the scale uh, to take down this fake stuff. When in fact, it was a tilted playing field that Facebook was running and putting the thumb on the scale could have leveled the scale by taking out phony news. And there are plenty of other instances outside of the U.S., by the way, where Facebook's you know influence has really swayed public opinion in, in ways that have been I well, mean, quite damaging well, to Well, it societies. swayed public opinion, but also caused riots and exactly. deaths. And you know, the places I, I talk about are Myanmar and the Philippines. And you know, this happened before 2016, and uh, Facebook had full warning. When Facebook went international, they um, followed their unofficial model, motto of move fast, and break things was part of that motto at one point. And uh, they, it was a reckless move to, you know, because they were, wanted to grow very quickly. They would go into countries where people weren't used to getting all this information injected into their, you know, uh, uh, their phones. And uh, they didn't know how to handle that. They didn't know how to assess it. Uh, and people abused the platform. And Facebook, in the early stages of this, they crowdsourced the translation. And in some cases, there was no one at Facebook who could even read the language that the people were writing the posts on. Mm-hmm. Um, in Myanmar, uh, they had riots that led to deaths around 2012. And it wasn't until 2015 that they even translated their rule book of what content is acceptable uh, on the platform. That's right. And this is just Facebook we're talking about, too. Facebook, as I mentioned earlier, now owns WhatsApp. We've seen disinformation spread on WhatsApp uh, as well in ways that have been incredibly harmful to people. Um, I guess I'm wondering, well, two things. One, could something like the misinformation that was spread during the 2016 have been prevented had there been people inside Facebook who were just aware enough to have you know thought about this far enough in advance and second i'm wondering because we we talked about how you had access to people like mark zuckerberg and cheryl what you took away from having those conversations with them in terms of their responsibility over these issues well and the first part the answer is really bigger the answer is you know, not so much to look at things beginning 2015 and in, during 2016 itself and saying, you know, how could Facebook have minimized this? And they certainly could have because they knew about it and they could have done the things that they wound up doing afterwards, which has cut down to some degree uh, the spread of, of fake news. Um, there I said it. Um, and <laughs> so, but the bigger picture is, Facebook became the kind of platform where this stuff could thrive by a number of decisions it made earlier in its history. And that's sort of the process of what happened that I really try to document in the book. For instance, in 2008 and 2009, uh, Mark Zuckerberg was obsessed with Twitter. 
He saw that as competition. He tried to buy it. And when they said no, he put some of the elements of Twitter, it's the viral nature of it, uh, and you know the real-time nature of it, and the nature, the idea that it spreads a lot of news uh, into the news feed. And it changed the character of the news feed during those years. It used to be, uh, it was mainly about stuff that happened from your social network. And they let in more. So the news feed as we know it now is if a friend of a, a, you know, a friend or someone even you don't know at all puts up a, a post and someone else who you know comments on it or even a friend of yours comments on it, um, uh, it winds up in your news feed. So you get drawn into a crazy discussion you know, where your things are shared with you that uh, don't have anything to do with your social life or the people you know, but it, it's a, like a political discussion and that it was shown to you because some crazy post got a lot of engagement. So the kind of platform Facebook became led to these problems. And it's not so easy to fix uh, if you look at it and say, well, it's 2016, how do we stop this? Uh, they could have done more, but the whole problem was a result of shifts made in the newsfeed uh, years before. And in terms of your, your opinions of Mark and Cheryl, having spent so much time with them throughout the reporting of this book, do you feel like they've learned from what happened in 2016 and beyond do you feel that they take responsibility well they've learned they've learned that that wow it's a, it was a mistake to let this stuff circulate like this um, but uh, mark told me early on in, in our trip to nigeria uh, that facebook has this engineering mentality and that's the way we work and I think that's the way they've dealt with this problem. They said, hmm, we have this, these problems here, fake news. How do we get, get this pushed down? So they've done a number of measures to minimize it, but the basic platform is still the same. The things that allowed it to appear and thrive uh, are still there, and they're sort of doing after-the-fact patches to try to keep it down. Uh, in order to really be effective, you'd have to fundamentally rethink the platform or shift your focus to other products that Facebook is doing, uh, which I think they're also starting to do now. So if you want to really look at a long-term solution, um, you might want to look beyond the news feed into what Mark calls a, a privacy-focused vision. And you know, to bring in more of Instagram and WhatsApp and Messenger uh, into the center of Facebook, um, where they're not going to have these problems so much because they're going to encrypt the content. Well, speaking of vision, uh, Facebook has famously not had a great track record launching hardware. There was the failed effort to launch the phone. There was the Facebook portal device, which came out about a year ago, which is a video chat device that puts a camera that Facebook controls in people's homes and obviously uh, had some pushback from uh, the more privacy minded Facebook users out there. What is your assessment of Facebook as a hardware company, both in the past and in the future? Well, I wrote a lot about this phone that they were building. Um, it actually got pretty far. Uh, it had an Intel chip, and Yves Bihar, the famous designer, uh, created it. Um, he did have a, a problem that he sort of skated by, which was left-handed people really couldn't use the phone in his design. <laughs> no big deal. But, <laughs> no big deal. But, uh, <laughs> So uh, and the, the phone's the phone's code name I love this was Ghostface Killer, mm -hmm. um, yeah, and they they eventually scrapped that idea and decided to do a less ambitious version uh, on mapping an operating system on a phone by HTC. Uh, 
for different reasons, the portal didn't work so much. Some of the reviews were saying, you know, actually, this isn't a bad product, but we don't trust Facebook. Yeah. They're the last place you'd want to uh, buy something that puts a camera in your home in, right? Yeah, that was the consensus on it. Like, excellent technology, but just, like, why does this have to connect to Facebook? But they, they did buy a hardware company, Oculus. And if you look at it, they haven't done a bad job of refining that virtual reality headset that's mostly used for games. Uh, it's still too soon for that mm-hmm. to happen. They have to wind up funding uh, not only their hardware effort, but they pay the, the game developers to make the games, mm-hmm. you know, most of them. Uh, they have this thing called Oculus Studios that funds people to make games because they can't possibly sell enough games to offset the huge cost of making a really great virtual reality game. Um, uh, the guy in charge now of their hardware division is this fellow named Andrew Bosworth, uh, known universally throughout the Facebook world as Boz, a very trusted lieutenant. And he was the person who they called in to build their mobile ads when that whole sector was in crisis. Uh, They hadn't figured out how to crack it earlier on. And uh, he's a smart guy, and I think they'll keep at it for a while. Uh, So you'll see more hardware efforts coming out of, of, of Facebook. And they're putting huge money into research, uh, particularly in VR and AR, that might find their way in there. And so Facebook's going to be a big player in this big industry-wide uh, battle to who's going to create the eyeglasses for alternate realities. All right. But left-handed people won't be able to wear the eyeglasses. <laughs> Left-eyed people. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. Uh, Stephen, do you think that Facebook at this point is too big to fail? I think that... Facebook, you know, with its is close to three billion people now. It's too big to go away. But uh, like all tech companies, it's vulnerable when the next paradigm shift happens. When the next big thing comes along, they had a near death experience with mobile. I write about, uh, and uh, the reason why Zuckerberg bought. Oculus was he thought maybe this is the next mobile. Uh, we're not going to get cut short. As a matter of fact, we're going to be ahead of everyone else if this happens. Uh, now they're putting money into brain machine interface stuff, right? So mm-hmm. that'll maybe augment the virtual reality stuff, but maybe it'll be something else. Maybe, you know, when we don't carry around our phones, but just put those little implants in our heads, uh, Facebook will be there. Well, you know, like you, isn't that exciting? It, it's <laughs> kind of terrifying. <laughs> um, like you, and like a lot of people, I have a MySpace uh, profile. I have a Friendster profile. I have an Orkut profile. I can't log into any of those. I can't access any of the information that I've uploaded there. I'm sure there's some possible scenario in the future where Facebook, as an entity, will cease to exist, and all of our data that we've uploaded will go somewhere. Maybe right. it'll go into a holding company. Maybe somebody else will come along and buy it, a company that doesn't exist yet. This you, may happen in 100 years. I'm sorry to interrupt, but do you mean Facebook Big Blue, the the Facebook app we log into today, or you mean Facebook and all of its holdings, like WhatsApp and I mean, Instagram? If, if you and, look at my WhatsApp chat history, mm-hmm. Everything that I've ever uploaded to Instagram and every comment that I've made, every band that I've liked, every recipe that I've liked, and all of my friend-to-friend data on Facebook is held in this great store. And what happens when Facebook goes away and all that data is still out there for 3 billion people? Well, uh, it's up for grabs, right? Someone could buy it. It belongs to Facebook. So Facebook will say, we never sell your data to other companies. And that is true, but in a narrow sense uh, only because 
sometimes advertisers can figure out things about your data if they target something very specific. Right. right. Someone, it, may, it may not be sold. It doesn't mean it's not shared. Mm. Right. Well, if, if, if they say, I'm, I'm looking for someone who lives in the Noe Valley of San Francisco, who likes Thelonious Monk, who, you know, uh, doesn't, you know, only wears sandals, right? You know, they, they, they could figure that out and target an ad to you. And if you respond to the ad, they know, oh, this person fits our criteria. So that can slip out there. So it's sort of a backdoor into the data. But in terms of the store of the data, you mentioned the WhatsApp compared to the uh, Big Blue. Uh, when Facebook bought WhatsApp, it promised the users that it wouldn't merge their information with its big data cache that has on you from your activities and the other things. And they violated that. They got a big fine for that. And, but, uh, and the WhatsApp founders were appalled uh, but it's all in one store now. So what you do on WhatsApp uh, is collected, you know, along with all your Facebook activity and Instagram activity. So it is a very valuable store of information. We were appalled when uh, 87 million profiles fell into the hands of this company called Cambridge Analytica. And uh, if Facebook at some point goes away, and very few companies live to be 100 years old or whatever, um, uh, whoever buys the company would have access to that data. Jeff Bezos is going to buy it. That's stone. <laughs> and then, by the way, total speculation. You did not hear it first on Gadget Lab, but I mean, it's got to yeah, be. Well, I don't think. I, I, yeah, to be sure, that, that's not going to happen very soon. <laughs> right. He's so. going to buy it for himself as a present for his 150th birthday. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. <laughs> and they'll have to send it to him on, a on planet, planet Jupiter. Of course. Exactly. <laughs> yep. We're on the same page there. No, but I think Mike brings up a really good question. Every so often, there's a wave of, of chatter of people saying, I'm deleting my Facebook. But I think that's a very privileged position for a lot of people because in certain markets, in certain countries, Facebook is synonymous with the internet. It is how they stay connected. It's how they get local information. Um, for other people, it's just this social media thing that sometimes feels really invasive and annoying. And so I think it's the latter group who will say, I'm just going to delete my Facebook. But do you envision a world in which... In mass, people ever really truly get off of Facebook apps? I, I don't think it would happen of people, this, you know, masses of people deciding, I'm going to delete Facebook. And, and to delete Facebook, you don't, you don't have to just take it off your phone. You've got to go through a whole process to get it off their servers. It takes weeks. Yeah. Uh, but if it does go, it will be because people start using something else and they'll let their Facebook activities, maybe the activities of the other stuff, fade away and, and they won't use it anymore. They'll use something else. And Mark Zuckerberg is terrified of this because of his experience with mobile. Uh, he knows that companies are not forever and he has to keep doing new things. And this is this tension he's had the past few years because in one hand, his top priority has to be winning back trust, which is a heavy lift considering all the things that have happened. But also, he knows that he has to keep moving in, into new areas and, and keep exploring what's going to work for Facebook in the future. And we had a conversation specifically about that not long after Cambridge Analytica, where he was going to address a developers conference, this F8 conference. And uh, he said, well, I'll spend the first 15 minutes of my keynote saying how I'm going to win back trust and all the things we're going to do to you know, uh, help our reputation. And in the second 15 minutes, I'm going to say all of the new things we're going to do. Hey, we're going to introduce a dating 
program. You know, dating feature, isn't that great? And I said, well, uh, actually, I, I see a problem there. I mean, do you really think this is the time to do it just after Cambridge Analytica? And he said, well, Facebook's always had dating in the, lurking in the background and blah, blah, blah. And then a few minutes later, he circled back. He said, do you really think that's going to be a problem? I said, Mark, people don't trust Facebook. You're going to now, you want their dating information? And he, he just kind of like, you know, nodded and maybe gave me that Sauron's gaze a little and uh, introduced the product. Well, there you go. And now Barry Diller looks at buying Facebook. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's probably doesn't have enough money for that. All right, uh, Stephen, this has been a really, really enlightening conversation. Thanks very much. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to do our recommendations. And Stephen is going to stick around for that. So stay tuned. All right, Stephen, since you're our guest, you go first. What's your recommendation for the Gadget Lab audience this week? Well, when I started to do the actual writing um, of Facebook, the inside story, actually started doing the researching, I decided to abandon Microsoft Word and use a different product. And I, uh, everyone that's telling me about this uh, word processor writing tool called Scrivener, uh, it costs a fraction of what Word costs. Um, it's faster, it's better, and it's got it's project-oriented. So there's even a, a way that you could say, I'm writing a nonfiction book and allows you to write in chapters and bring in all your research. Uh, you could go to screenplay mode and write a screenplay. Um, and it's a very fast, fantastic word processor. You don't have to pay a monthly subscription. It works even when the internet is down. Uh, <laughs> and it, it turned out to be of great use to me uh, in uh, writing this book, and I'm stuck with it. And how much does it cost? 50 bucks. All right, there we go. Well, that is indeed a fraction of word. Also, I'll have everybody know that when we were chatting about this earlier, Stephen said, oh, I wrote the book on Scrivener. And I, for a moment, I thought he actually wrote a book on it because he's written so many books about tech companies. <laughs> he has not yet written a book about Scrivener, but I'm guessing yeah, 2021, I was my next book. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to interview hundreds of people at Scrivener. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> if you can find them. <laughs> okay, thank you for that recommendation. The Russian <laughs> the, you know, incursion into Scrivener right, will be Lazy the climax Bear, of my deep book. deep into yes. Scrivener. Yeah, yeah. okay. Right Cyrillic. They What's do handle Cyrillic, yeah. <laughs> What's your recommendation? Uh, my recommendation is the New York Times cooking app, which is now on Android. It came out in like October and I downloaded it right away and it had all kinds of bugs and it crashed immediately on my phone and I hated the experience. But they have updated it. They have fixed a lot of the bugs and it now works. I have it on two different devices and it works the same on both devices and I cannot recommend it highly enough. There are fantastic recipes in there uh, that go back decades into the New York Times library, and it's also uh, a really good community for sharing recipes, bookmarking things. So that is my recommendation. You do have to be a New York Times subscriber in order to have unfettered access to the New York Times library of recipes within the cooking app. Is it an extra charge? No. So if you subscribe to the publication, you also get access to crosswords and to cooking. That's how they get you. That's how they get yeah, you. Yeah, you want that carrots confit recipe, you've got to read the news. That's right. Mm -hmm. So I recommend both of those things, but mm -hmm. in particular the cooking thing. Right, exactly. <laughs> Just all kinds of servings of vegetables. Yeah. Your news vegetables, your cooking vegetables, I don't know. But yeah, I'm if you're like, a Time subscriber and you're on an Android mm -hmm. device, get the cooking app. It's awesome. Okay, that's a good recommendation. What is yours? My recommendation is not a new product. I'm recommending Peloton. What? <laughs> yeah, Peloton. Not new at all. So I want to say two or three years ago now, I don't remember, probably about three years ago, I wrote 
a feature for The Verge back when I was working there at that publication uh, about Peloton. Really enjoyed working on it. It was my first time trying it. And I, this, I talked to this woman who, like, it had transformed her life. You know, she sold everything she owned to buy the Peloton bike. And then she was so inspired by it, she became an instructor. She used to drive from upstate New York down to this the company's New York City studios to like take classes in person. Anyway, I had like so much fun. I talked to Steve Martocci from Splice, also a big Peloton fan. And um, so I tried it myself for a couple months and I really liked it. And I recently traveled and at the hotel I was staying at, they had a Peloton. And so I tried it again. And I just think, and I also should mention, I have a broken toe right now. So I'm kind of limited in what I can do. I have to wear like soft sneakers and I could fit my, I could fit my, my foot into the cage of the Peloton bike and it didn't hurt. Um, And I, so I tried it again, logged into my old account, had took a couple classes and I was thinking, this is really great. It's really great. And um, this is not to make light of the coronavirus whatsoever, but this people are now working from home a lot or being quarantined or having self-imposed quarantines. We've written at Wired.com a lot about the coronavirus and some stories about working from home, working remotely. And um, and so it kind of like is part of that broader trend of like, what do you do when you're home and you mm. have to access everything you need from home or so Have nearby? you gotten one in your home now? No, I haven't. And um, I've thought about it, though. I have thought about it, but it is expensive. Do you expensive. have an apartment with a beautiful vista? Of <laughs> 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 like in the advertising. No, I feel like I need, like, more succulents and, like, multi-thousand-dollar rugs before I, before I like, inv- you know. And a Vitamix really. and a jar of turmeric. Yeah, exactly, mm. exactly. And, um, and I need to, like, you know, rise at four in the morning looking completely put together in, like, my elegant workout gear and my perfect ponytail bound on down to the bike uh no i mean i don't you know i don't know that kind of setup but i but i could i guess i could get a peloton at this point but i just i haven't but i liked it i liked going to a hotel and seeing it and i would like to try it more i think anyway peloton what can i say solid recommendation yeah all right that is our show. It's been a great show. We went a little bit longer than usual, but I think it was totally worthwhile because we got to hear so many great insights from Stephen. Thank you, Stephen, for joining us to talk about your book. It's my pleasure. I really enjoyed being on this podcast. And tell people where they can uh, find your book and where they can hear you speak in the next couple of weeks. Okay. Well, they could find it at any bookstore or any place that sells books online. Uh, indie bookstores are always wonderful. You can go there. And, but if you're self-quarantined, you could bring it in there. And what a good way to spend a couple of weeks, right? Uh <laughs> reading this book. Um, I'm going to be in Berkeley on Friday the The day we're publishing this podcast, yep. Yep, on on the the 6th. Um, If there's a South by Southwest, I'm going to be there on Monday uh, the 16th at 5 o'clock. I'll be at the New Orleans Book Fest. I'll be at the Harvard uh, Bookstore uh, March 13th. Well, that'll be awkward. Oh, well, yeah. Larry Larry Lessig is interviewing me. (laughs) Oh, Oh, my goodness. So that'll be interesting. (laughs) I hope he doesn't sue me. All right. Well, um, you've got a very busy book tour, so we appreciate Mike is still laughing. I'm like, it's not funny. All right. <laughs> uh, you, you've got a very busy book tour, so we appreciate you taking the time to hang with your pals here at Wired. Um, so thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find us all on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth. Our consulting executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Goodbye for now, and uh, we'll be back next week. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take podcast from Bloomberg News. 
Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.